Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds, but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. You're listening to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Firm Network. On War. Methods of Resistance. Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Yaga Malark. Today we're going to be speaking about methods of resistance. But before we get into that, I promised y'all that I would get back to you on my game with Soren, which uh, happened this last weekend. And, oh yeah, I totally beat him. Just trounced him. And, uh, yeah, sent him back in. I didn't. I didn't do those things. I... I lie. He destroyed me. I, I am normally not a person who surrenders. I usually make my opponent wipe me off the board, or we go to turn five, because I, I believe in trying to seize the advantage at any time, in any way that I possibly can. After his turn, in round two, and he went first, I conceded. Because I only had three armager Helverins left, and he had me surrounded by a bunch of big, mean, nasty melee types that were about to converge on me very quickly. I, there was there was no escape <laughs> for me in that situation. He was... Oh, and it was beautiful. I mean, again, uh, throughout the course of that first turn, the whole t- I mean, the whole round, he destroyed my Night Paladin, and then my, what was it, seven? Yeah, seven uh, Armager Warglaives. It was ridiculous. Uh, but yeah, by the time that it would have been my turn, he that's that's what it would have happened with this army. And I'm not super up on on like most of the Necron stuff or, or even the names, but I can tell you by descriptions that there were these big dudes with just like come all cannons, and they they kind of had beetle bodies, but like an upper torso that looked like a normal Necron warrior type dude, and they were just devastating. I mean, just like so much damage. So much damage coming off of those guns. It was ridiculous. And then you had the, um, oh, they were, they had the big cleavers and they were the melee ones. Um, they just kind of came skittering in, I think Scopec, Scopec somethings, destroyers maybe. Um, regardless, they chopped me to bits because knights don't really have a, uh, an invuln in melee. So once you get in against them, unless they have the advantage, it hurts. It hurts real bad. And so my big stompy boy army was reduced to just ash (laughs) at the end of his second turn. It was ridiculous. Uh, I've rarely received such a, such a butt whooping. So Soren, if you're listening, um, yeah, that was amazing. And I'm coming for you because I definitely am going to work at building an army and building skills that can actually beat, beat this guy. Oh my goodness. He's so good. Guys, you don't even understand. (laughs) Anyways, um, you know, speaking of, of armies, I've decided, as I've said before, to paint my 
armies. My, my knights are being painted up by TF, and so they're going to look gorgeous, and they already are. Um, I will be posting pics of those. They should be done uh, relatively soon. He's wrapping them up. And, and so I'm working through painting my Jade Guardians, which is like my, my successor chapter for the Dark Angels, before I really get into building and painting my word bearers. There were a few Terminators, though, that I had that were still painted. And I had painted them very early on in my career, maybe in, within the first few months of playing, and I did not know how to thin my paints. And so they were just kind of like blobs of paint that sort of looked like Deathwing Terminators. And so I resolved to remove said paint so that I could actually uh, paint it the way that I wanted to, not all like bulked out and everything like that. So I was looking up online and there's a bunch of different paint thinners that are like industrial grade. You know, you need to have an open ventilated space and, you know, mask to be able to do it. And it, yeah, it, uh, yeah. So that, I mean, that wasn't going to be for me, not necessarily at the moment. I mean, I, I guess I could in the future, but this was all I really needed to do. And so as I'm looking through, um, I find somebody who was talking about using pine saw, you know, soaking them in pine saw and then kind of scrubbing them with the toothbrush and having the paint come off. And I went, you know what, that's, I can do that. Pine is easily accessible and I've got mason jars. And so I, I stuck them in the mason jars. It was supposed to be for 24 hours, but I put them in for like 72, uh, just to be sure, you know, and I took them out and was trying to scrub them off in my, in my main room. And the stuff was going everywhere. It was just being flicked everywhere by the paintbrush. So I was sitting there thinking, I was like, how, how can I do this without ruining my couch? And I was like, oh, I could just go in the shower. There's plenty of water to wash it away in there. And I could just shower and, and scrub these guys off. Do not shower with pine sole. That's That should be on the bottle somewhere. So yeah, execs, think about that. Because some dummy will try to shower with pine sole. And thankfully, I mean, it says right on there that it can be a skin irritant. And the amount that I spilled on myself, um, I don't think I'm, I was allergic to it. But I am pretty sure I have cancer now. Or, or will at some point because of this. Now, good news is my Deathwing Terminators got cleaned. And got repainted and everything's good there but yeah pine salt fumes are are not fun they they make you real dizzy <laughs> and I, I ended up being there for like an hour and not even really i seen knew i was there like i'm sure i sustained oh brain damage from it so moral of the story there is if you are going to strip your paint in any way make sure that you are <laughs> in a well ventilated area not in the shower so as I've said before, I'm planning on going to Battle for the Ring this year, barring any, you know, disasters that, that keep anybody from being able to go. So anybody who's actually going to Battle for the Ring, I would love to see you there. I'm going to be doing interviews, so if you want a chance to chat on the show, just let me know, and we can, we can have a talk. But, like any of the theorists that we've covered would advise, I've already started to prep for it. I have already started to acquire a place where I might get some food, which is a, uh, a kitchen, Sarka's Kitchen. She does amazing work. Uh, if you're ever at an event where she's at, I recommend absolutely participating in her kitchen. And I'm going to be signing up there, so food is going to be taken care of, right? That's one of the first things we're supposed to identify and, and secure. Uh, I've, got a, I've got transport arranged for my, my gear, like my tent and my weapons and my garb. Such things, the things that I'm not going to take on the plane with me when I'm flying down, you know, those are arranged to come down. So I've got portage for my gear. 
and I've got a place on the other side where I know I can crash before I go. So I've got my muster point, I've got my portage, and I've got my food and drink already ready to go. And I've got like two months still. And so that means that I can now prepare for anything, because something will go wrong, inevitably. We know that. From our study of history, from our study of military science, no plan goes perfectly. So something in this is likely to find a hitch. But the thing is, I have now prepared enough in advance and have enough of the infrastructure in place that if something does occur, I can deal with it rather than having to deal with it at the last minute and, and have a bunch of other things that I'm depending on as well. So we're good to go. And these are the things I would advise for y'all too. And I've, of course, I got my packing list for all my, for all my stuff. I'm not a fool. I know exactly what to bring eventing. You know, I might share that with y'all at some point when we do another camp episode, just like my, and, and this was recommended to me from other people who have been doing it much longer than I have. Just a nice, concise packing list, the things that you need. Not necessarily, like, there's a bunch of things we might want, but if we're trying to pack light, we go after the things we need. And since I'm flying down, that's going to be what I'm doing. You will notice as well on this episode that there is no interview. And uh, the reason for that is there's a holiday here in America that we've been preparing for, for a little bit. And I have not been able to get somebody who is available to come on to the show. I, like, I, just about everybody I was getting in touch with was busy or I was busy. So there is no interview today. I apologize for that. But hopefully we're going to have somebody for next time because I always enjoy having a chat with folks and examining their ideas on the matter and not just my own. But I, I think I've yammered for long enough. So let's get right into it and talk about methods of resistance. Let me be upfront with y'all and begin by saying that this particular episode may or may not actually have real world implications on what we do in physical or intellectual wargaming. However, I found the concepts really fascinating and thought that, you know, if, there, if we can probably glean a little bit of stuff from it, but it also really helps understand Clausewitz's world and how the military science that he's talking about influenced war at that particular time and in that particular place. Let's start by talking about theory. Now, this particular theory, I've got a whole lot of pick a fight with a dead guy about it. So we're going to get into it right now. He says, and again, he says that this is pure theory, that this should not be an absolute when we're dealing with policy. All right. He says that the war does not begin with the offense. The offensive player does not begin the war. They're just moving to take possession. They're moving to uh, achieve whatever their object is. But the resistance by the defense is what starts the war. Now, obviously there's some huge holes in this particular idea. One need only think of Pearl Harbor, for instance, where the defense absolutely did not get a chance to resist at all. It was a devastatingly planned uh, attack on the U.S. Navy. So the ability to kind of respond there, the resistance by the defense was not, but that kicked off the war in that particular case. But as a general rule, when you have somebody who's invading, and, and putting up resistance. So let's even think of Russia and Ukraine, which is a conflict that is happening right now. The war, quote-unquote, did not kick off until the Ukrainians res resisted the Russians and their movement uh, to take possession of those eastern provinces that they were after. 
So, I mean, this is an interesting perspective. Obviously, from, from our perspective, the war is begun by the offense because they're the ones who make the aggressive action, which makes the defense necessary. But this is an interesting way of saying it. You know, it's an interesting way of kind of viewing it. So I thought I might, you know, bring it up, even though I disagree with him wholeheartedly on this one. Um, but it, it kind of um, continues into saying that the defense must have motives of action. Like, they have to be kind of prepared for this, and to be prepared for it, we have to have an organization of fighting around whatever object we're trying to protect. Whether that be cities, or our borders, or our people, we have to have organization, plans, to protect those things. We don't know necessarily where our enemy will strike, or what they're going to be after. I mean, sometimes it's easy to assume, let's say that we have some very rich, minerally rich area that uh, is, is extremely important to, the, like, in strategic value. Well, it might be wise, then, to organize some defense around that, because we understand that that is going to be valuable to our enemy. And if they were to attack, that might be a likely target. The offense doesn't always know what this is. They don't have the same advantage, because they don't know what the defense is planning. The defense can react. The defense can see what the offense is doing as a, as a general rule. Again, we're not taking into account the surprise wars that can kick off. And some of the, again, this is a general rule, general theory. But they don't know. They don't necessarily know what the capabilities are for the defense in defending said object. But they have to take along their means, which is the army, toward the object anyways. And make the best plan that they can, knowing full well that they do not know what the defender is capable of, or is planning on doing. This is always uh, undermined, of course, if they do know this, if they are able to acquire some piece of valuable intel, where we're able to ascertain exactly what our, what our opponent is capable of and how they plan on using those means to defend the object, we can then make plans. Again, think about the Japanese in World War II. They knew that the USA Navy was critical to defending the Pacific Ocean. If they wanted to expand into the South Pacific there, they needed to make sure that the U.S. could not respond. And so, knowing what the movements were of the fleet, knowing where they would be based there at Pearl Harbor, they were then able to kind of take away that advantage that the defense usually has in defending. Now, what they didn't count on, of course, was the industrial might of the United States and our ability to churn out massive amounts of ordnance and materiel to then be committed to the, uh, to the effort. So again, this, this, what we've just talked about was more theory, was more something that we can think about in the back of our minds when considering this, but really shouldn't influence the way that we play. Why did I talk about it then? Why did Clausewitz write about it? <laughs> I don't know. But let's, let's move into talking about actual practical methods of resistance. And before we get into those methods, let's understand what we have. What, what are our means of defense that we can then use for our resistance. Well, he names five of them, and these five are very useful. Let's say that we play games like Civilization, or or any other sort of world builder game where you have multiple cities and you can build armies to, to reinforce and kind of do your will. You control an entire nation at this point. So the means of defense, let's say our enemy has declared war on us. What we have available to us is what he calls the landware which is basically militia. For the United States, we call it our National Guard. And while the National Guard can be deployed into war zones, they are typically used for 
combating things that are happening here. If we're not being actively defended, they can be rec- or, uh, called upon to serve as firefighters or as medics in like Hurricane Katrina, for instance, the National Guard was called up and they did some very good work down there trying to take care of people. Fires, again, I, I know that they've been called into, I think the California fires several times to help out with that too. And so this is very important. This is a way that we can prepare for an invasion. And this militia, this, this National Guard, is not designed necessarily to go forth and conquer. It doesn't count as a standing army. It is more of something that we can use on, the, on these interior lines in order to repulse our enemy once they get in. If we're going offensively, we should have a, a standing army prepared for that. But we're not talking about offense right now. So this militia, this National Guard, if you will, which, as an aside, as we heard before in uh, one of our previous episodes talking about France, the term National Guard was first used during the French Revolutionary Wars after uh, they toppled the monarchy. So that's cool. Full circle, y'all. Back to it. So these, this is an important means of defense because, again, they're, they're trained to be able to operate within their environment and they are able to do more zone control than, say, a standing army would be. And they contribute to the efforts of a standing army, so militia or landwehr. Our next means of defense would be fortresses, large emplacements that are able to kind of control an area. These extend our defensive reach and can do a, a lot for us. I will get into fortresses, however, next episode, when we talk a lot about uh, them and their application to the defense. But for our purposes here, let me just say that really strong ones, unassailable ones, are ones that will make your enemy kind of pass by. So if we're trying to draw our opponent into a battle, an unassailable fortress is not necessarily the way to do it, unless they're the Iron Warriors and you know they're going to try anyways. So a weak, quote-unquote weak, fortress is useful for drawing our enemy into costly sieges. You know, not a fortress that's going to you know, capitulate quickly, but one that can fix our opponent in one place well, we can form up and, and do a counterattack of some sort. But again, I'll get into fortresses in detail next episode. No, no reason to drone about them here. We also just have the people in general. Not necessarily like the National Guard. Not people that are armed and trained to fight. But just the people themselves. The total influence of the general population. And how they influence the army that's in the area. Contributions, for instance. It's very, you look at the American Civil War and the fact that the armies in the field often had to forage, which is to say that they went and either uh, were given supplies from farmers and, and ranchers in the areas, or they were taken, depending on the support that was in that particular population. And so, you know, Southerners were in the South, they were typically, uh, the pe- people that they were asking were typically more amicable, same thing with the Northern, Northerners in the North. But when they switch sides, when they started to cross over, of course it becomes harder because the people are not willing. So it has to be forced, which complicates things immensely. So that influences things. But it also influences in terms of intel. If we have the support of the people, if the people are on our side, they can provide us with valuable intel. If they are on our opponent's side, they will give them valuable intel. And of course there's spies and, and traitors all over the place. But if we have the people on our side, they can be a great means of defense for resisting our enemy and giving us information on what our enemy is doing and potentially what they're planning. 
You know, there's, there's no one who's a better spy than somebody who's innocuous, like a, a servant. Servants can basically go anywhere. So if we turn a servant and we're able to use that because we're supported to defeat our enemy, well, outstanding, right? Our fourth means of defense would be our national armament. So what sort of arms and material that we can possibly bring to the field or to a battle, or to a war in general, really. But the national armament is not a force in of itself. Just because we have a bunch of high-quality guns doesn't mean that they are effective without the people to be able to shoot them, without the people who are trained to be able to shoot them. So a national armament is awesome, making sure that we can resist our opponent, we have the means to do so in terms of weaponry. And again, materiel, wagons and uh, planes and anything else that might contribute to our war effort. But again, it is not a means of defense unto itself, but this, this makes everything else more effective. If our National Guard is equipped with exceptionally good weapons, they're going to have a much easier time resisting our opponent than if they're armed with sticks and rocks. Lastly, our, uh, the, the last means of defense we're going to talk about are our allies. People who are essentially interested in maintaining the integrity of our country or of our, of our team. Now, allies, it should be noted, are not eternal. Just because somebody or some organization is our ally at one moment does not mean that they will be at the next because all people, all organizations, are seeking to expand their influence and increase their power. And so we come together and we ally with one another when we know that that can be done between the two of us. However, when our interests diverge or when an opportunity to seize more power is available to one side or the other, well, our interests then change. And with that, our allies may be changing. And so it is important to make sure that our allies are constantly engaged, that we are giving them a reason to be our allies, because in the, the mode when we're being invaded, it's very important to have people looking out for us. Again, the Ukrainian war is a great example because it's going on right now. The Ukraine is able to resist Russia at the moment, primarily because of the weapons that are being pumped into it by allies. They didn't have the national armament to necessarily resist a superpower. However, the entirety of the Western world basically has been pumping weapons and supplies and training and everything else into the Ukraine, giving them a fighting chance against the Russians. And between that and their very strong support from their people and the National Guard, like, which is to say that the, you know, the trained, organized militia that is, taking, that is kind of resisting the Russian advance, their means of defense have been multiplied massively because of these last two. So let's go over that again real quick before we move on. The militia, the landwehr, you know, a type National Guard situation. Fortresses, which again we're going to get into next time. The people and how their total influence uh, kind of affects our army or our side. The national armament, the material that's available to us, and our, the influence of our allies and their involvement in the situation and their support in the situation. Now, I can see uh, parallels where this would come over to something, you know, in physical wargaming on the field like Belagarth. You know, having make, making sure that we have people who can defend, you know, fortresses. Again, we'll get into that next time. But the national armament is very important. The weapons that we have available. Same thing with uh, 40k or anything that's, that's tabletop like that where you can collect your own models, build your own army. Making sure that we have an excellent national armament. 
making sure that we have the ability to use our weapons in the most effective means possible and that they are some of the, be the best that can be offered to us and plentiful and lots of ammo, whatever that may be, whether it's arrows or bullets or cannons, balls, you know, whatever. That's very important too, having that diversity to choose from depending on the situation and depending on our enemy. Options are always good. And then allies are huge. I can't tell you how many battles have been won because two, you know, units have looked at each other and been like, all right, we could fight each other and this bigger unit is just going to come through and wipe out the scraps, wipe out whoever's left. Or we could get together and go after them together and, and make it so that we're not alone, but we're, you know, double the force. And then we'll deal with one another. But again, that's that changing interest, right? Our interest is against them. Once that's done, our interest would then be against each other. But in both those cases, they are very important on the field of battle and within 40k as well, at least that national armament part. So we've got these means, right? These means of resistance that we, we've, we've got, to, or a means of defense, right? That we're working with. How do we use them? What are our methods of resistance? Well, that's the, the topic of the show. So here we are. First, we have to understand the elements of defense. And we've kind of talked about this in previous episodes. Because there's two, two elements that we're looking at here. The first one is that the concept of defense lies in warding off our opponent. And that's, that's the difference. Their, our opponent is coming at us. They're trying to achieve something. They're trying to strike a blow, grab an objective, whatever. And we're the ones trying to ward that off. We're blocking or dodging or whatever the case may be. We are, we are moving away from trying to preserve ourselves. And so because of this, it creates a natural state of expectancy where we're looking for the, for the shot. We know it's going to come. We don't necessarily know where or when. So we wait with expectation in order to do our job when we're defending, which is to ward off our opponent and be in the way of whatever they're doing. Now, again, when we're dealing with this concept of defense, this warding off, we cannot be lured into just a state of endurance because we will fail. Defense is not an absolute state. If we are just defensive, if we're just trying to endure, eventually our opponent will find a way through. Eventually our opponent will have the means in order to overcome us. We'll think of a way to overcome us. So there needs to be some sort of offensive action that's kind of a part of this. And even though the overall battle may be considered defensive or an overall campaign may be considered defensive, we do need some offensive action in there as well. And so in this particular case, of course, pursuit. We've talked about that before, the ability to follow up on any particular victory in a defensive sense, achieve a positive result by, by doing this pursuit. And this does not negate the overall state of def defense, like I said. Having a an offensive action, excuse me, does not negate a defensive campaign or a defensive battle. Because the nature of the battle was defensive. And we'll kind of get into that in, in the next episode as well. Like what co constitutes a defensive position. So yeah, this uh, to kind of finish it out again. Uh, pursuit is kind of the follow-up. We need some offensive action or some blow to their flank or some blow to, to an important place to stop them from, from attacking us or to disrupt their plans. So not wholly defensive, but we are in a state of expectation and reaction. We are not necessarily the ones taking the action. We are seeing our opponent 
and what they're doing and trying to turn the tables or engage them in a way that is advantageous to us. So expect and react. The first concept of, uh, of defense that's warding off. Secondly, we have the overall reaction, and this is the second element of defense. And this is different than a pursuit. The pursuit, of course, is a follow-up on, on a tactical victory. But this is more of a strategic thing. And these are the actions that are needed to repel our enemy from the country entirely. Now, it may be our one tactical victory. Maybe we get that one victory and we're able to force our opponent back across the border, and that's what is needed. It is not always the case. And so this reaction that we're talking about here, the second element of defense, are the means that we do to push our opponent from our country entirely. And so at this point, we're going to press, pass into the strategic attack. It's a follow-up. And even though, again, the whole campaign may be considered defensive, this action is offensive. Again, moving, repelling them uh, from the country. And so these are like two of the, the methods of resistance that we have. Because of the concept of defense, we are, we're trying to ward off our opponent in the most effective means possible. And then once we have done so, once we have them on the run, we follow up with pursuit. And then strategically speaking, we continue that pursuit until we have forced them from the country or we have defeated them. Those are our two objectives, is either, either force their route and, and uh, you know, capitulation, or for them to leave where we want them to leave from. And when we're talking about this, again, from a strategic level, we're thinking about a theater of war. And when we have our army in this theater of war, there are a couple of things that we can, how we use our army, how we use our army in order to, to kind of enact our defense. And there's four of these. The first three, by the way, if we have a battle and there's a non-decision, you know, our opponent withdraws because they, they don't want to engage us, whether it's an unassailable position that we have or they just have, are too weak to be able to engage us, these first three favor the defender. The defender absolutely benefits from them, so let's talk about them real quick. The first one is attacking the enemy the moment they enter the theater. Remember that an offensive action does not constitute an offensive campaign. An offensive action can, can simply be, you know, again, moving to do this. And you're moving in the way. This isn't necessarily like moving and attacking them, but this is saying, okay, my enemy is moving into the, the theater of war. I am now going to move to defend immediately. So that's number one. And again, a non-decision, if we move into that position and they withdraw in some way, that favors us. We now have a position of power and we can continue to use that. The second one is taking a position on the frontier and waiting for the enemy to come in and then attack. So one of them is meeting them at the border, right there, boom, trying to repel them from our area. The second one is waiting until they're in some ways and engaging them. And this one is effective because again, it puts our opponent in a disadvantageous position because they are now stretching out their lines. They are now stretching out their, their you know, wagon trains and, and everything else that is going behind their line of retreat. And so in this particular way, we can force them to kind of do what we want a little bit more. If they've got a much larger force, of course, they're going to move to engage us. But we can also, by non-decision, kind of maneuver them into increasingly disadvantageous positions. So taking up our position and waiting for them, that's our second choice. The third one is taking up a reinforced position and waiting for them entirely. So this reinforced position being on something that we know that they want. They're going toward this incredibly industrial, mineral-rich area. 
and we know that they're going there. And so we are going to take up a reinforced position and wait for them to come to us because we know they're going to. And again, non-decision absolutely favors the defender here. They don't come, they don't engage, they move off to engage somewhere else. Awesome. <laughs> We've retained our industry and our mineral rich area. Now, number four is a little tricky because it reduces our interior lines and it lets our enemy move further into our territory. And that's, that's the idea, transferring our defense towards the interior, withdrawing our defense further away from the border, further away from the action toward the interior. And you would think, why? You know, the first two sound really quite reasonable, which is to say, we're <laughs> making sure that they can't get in at all. Why would we drag them in? Why would we make them deeper in our territory and us more vulnerable to what they're doing? Well, the point is overextension. If we're able to, again, draw them in and make it so that they are massively stretched out, because they're going to have to leave reinforcements behind, right? They're not just going to move one big army into our force. They have to leave garrisons in order to protect that line of retreat, which numerically reduces their forces. And so at some point, they're going to get to, the idea anyways, the hope, is that they're going to get to a point where they are no longer able to conduct an effective battle, and we can either meet them there in the center and push them back, or attack their line of retreat or their lines of communications and force them back that way. But in this particular case, a non-decision does not favor the defender because our enemy is moving deeper into our territory. They are making us more vulnerable in the process. So if we do engage them in battle, it needs to be a victorious because otherwise we're in a really bad position. Gettysburg is a fantastic example of this. We had moved, Meade had moved toward the interior in order to defend against Lee's push toward Washington, and they moved up, they hit, and the lines were somewhat overextended for the Confederates. They weren't able to bring their entire forces to bear as effectively as they would have wanted to, and they were stretched out. And the de decision in this case for the defender pushed Lee back and made him retreat to a, to a far less advantageous position, because if Meade had lost, if him as the defender, if he had lost, well, Lee had a straight shot straight to Washington at that point, could have gone and occupied the U.S. Capitol. It was a pivotal battle for that particular reason. But it had happened because the sacrifice had been made to let the enemy overextend themselves. Whether it was intentional or not, it is still kind of what happened for, for it. And so as we're going through these, one, two, three, four, which is to say attacking them the moment they enter our theater, waiting for them to enter and then attacking them, or taking up a reinforced position and waiting for them to come to us. And then lastly, uh, waiting for our enemy to overextend themselves and retreating to our interior. These increase in, the, in value of the time, which is to say our wait for it, right? As they progress, as we go down, because the longer we can draw this out, the more energy our enemy has to expend, the more uncertainty they have, the more, again, garrisons they have to put out. Time is on our side as the defender. However, as these increase, the level of sacrifice also increases in terms of country, in terms of materiel, in terms of sometimes even our army. Because we attack them the moment they enter the theater, right as they cross the border, well, we're repelling them. If we're able to win that fight, they don't damage anything. They don't come near our crops. We don't have to worry about them invading our mineral-rich areas because they've been defeated right on the border. Very little sacrifice intended for the country itself. Letting them come in a little bit, well, they might be foraging various towns on the border, confiscating things. Maybe there's uh, strategic positions that they're able to take 
where they're able to come into a, through the frontier. So they're a little bit more sacrificed there. Okay, well, we pull back and take our reinforced position and wait for them to come. Well, they have the ability to move in the country now, kind of take their pick of where they're going, what they're, what they're going to, how they're going to attack. So sacrifice there. And then drawing back into the interior and letting them come to us, why they have the full swath behind them. And so they have whatever objectives they've passed by, they have whatever material or industrial zones or, or whatever that they've passed by. So the sacrifice is necessary. So it's this, this trade-off, this wait for it, you know, waiting for our opponent to make a mistake, waiting for our opponent to put themselves in a disadvantageous position as they do, as they move further into our territory. We're taking that for sacrifice, but there needs to be a balance there. We can't sacrifice too much in order to get our weight for it, because if we do, then it's not really worth it, is it? And often in this particular case, if we're looking at these defenses from the, uh, the side of the offense and how they want to achieve victory, they are often ruined by the sword of the defense, right? And the sword of the defense doesn't necessarily refer to a literal sword that is held by the defense, but rather the ability they have to defend. The defender knows the territory better than the attacker the vast majority of the time. The defender is able to position themselves into an advantageous place while the attacker has to come to them. So there's this fear, automatic fear that enters any sort of offense in terms of being able to achieve a positive result and the position and the counter that the uh, defense is capable of. You know, are they going to come from another direction that we're not able to see? Intel is incredibly important, but often extremely scarce for a power that is invading or occupying a country. And this fear, or even aversion, we don't necessarily have to call it fear, but this aversion to this sort of defense has stifled many an attack. And I've, and I've seen it happen. Again, people who have been on the show have talked about, you know, as an individual, as somebody who is, is feared as an individual fighter or respected, as an individual fighter, they're able to go out and pause an enemy attack all by themselves. They're able to go out and say, hey, look at me. And until the opponent figures out that they've got the numbers to overwhelm them, well, they've still been defeated by the sword of defense. Ooh, that person's really good. I'm, I'm dissuaded from going that direction. I may have some buddies with me, but what if he kills me? So that, that they were ruined there. And perhaps our forces elsewhere are able to take advantage of that and, and move when that particular flank is occupied. So we're waiting for our aggressor to ruin themselves on the sword of defense. That's kind of the idea of one through three. You know, attacking them the moment they enter the theater, taking a position on the frontier, and then kind of waiting for them to attack, and then taking the reinforced position. We're wanting the defender to defeat, or the attacker, to defeat themselves mentally coming at us. The other way that we're waiting for the aggressor to make a mistake and to ruin them, as it were, is through number four. And for that, it's by their own efforts. You know, they're moving forward. And as you're moving through, forward through enemy territory, again, we need to be defending our line of retreat. We need to make sure that we've got the material going forward. So we've got extending lines of communication, extending lines of supply. And because of this, if the enemy is not really good at what they're doing, there are so many ways for our opponent to mess up in this particular case. Once they start to come into our territory, the risk of overextension multiplies extensively or, or massively or whatever word you want to put in there that means real big. And so by his own efforts, if they're coming forward and they make mistakes, 
or they've got holes in their plan, well, then they've been defeated by their own efforts in that particular case too, their failed efforts to actually conduct a proper offensive campaign. So the sword of defense is awesome. Sitting there and, and threatening them and saying, don't you come any closer. Yeah, that's awesome. And then of course we have the by their own efforts waiting for them to make a mistake as they're coming in towards us. Now, again, we have to reiterate here that for a strategic victory to take place here, not just a tactical victory, it's, it's, you know, the idea of winning a tactical victory as a defender is easy because it's, you repulse your opponent. They leave the field of battle, you win. But that's not a positive result. That's not actually a victory in terms of when we're talking about strategy. We need to follow up on it. And in order for it to be a positive result, so we need to have that pursuit element. We need to have the ability, if possible, to switch over to the strategic offensive, pushing our opponent back out of our, out of our territory. Which also becomes an issue when the further they are in. If we're pursuing and they've gotten real far in, let's, let's say we're doing number four. We're letting our opponent come towards our interior overextend themselves. And then we defeat them. We got a, this nice climactic battle that they know that they cannot win now and they have to start drawing back. And so they have to, you know, backpedal through our territory quickly while we are pursuing them, gaining that territory back rapidly. So by his own efforts, is awesome. And of course you got that sort of defense. So how do these things, real quick before I let you go, how do these things kind of apply to what we're doing in their, in their rather vague way? Well, in one-on-one -on -one fighting, I think that these, these four, you know, defense of the armies in the theater of war, they also work when we're talking about one-on-one -on -one fighting. You know, we can attack our opponent the moment they enter our, you know, our, our, our ability to attack them, whatever our threat sphere is. We attack them the moment they're in, because they're the ones advancing, but we can get the first shot, right? Or... We can wait for the other one, wait for them to come towards us a little more, wait for them to become a little bit more vulnerable, getting close, and then attack them at that point. So at this point, we may be talking about a brief counter or about, you know, you've got that square off section and then you move in to fight. That's kind of our number two here. Taking a reinforced position is kind of shoring up. If we've got a shield, it's sucking it in close to us, standing our ground, waiting for our opponent to come to us. You know, if, we're, if we've got two swords, we're bringing in our elbows and making sure that we're a, a small target that can expand out rapidly and, and hit our opponent in multiple angles. But in this particular case, we're relatively still and we're waiting for our opponent to make the first move. And so we're trying to make our defense as flawless as possible to be able to repulse whatever the, the, our uh, attacker brings at us. And lastly, we can have them advance toward us, try to do this overextension and then get them. You know, if we're in a larger group battle and we're engaging, of course, in a one-on-one -on -one fight, perhaps on a flank, well, the further we retreat and are in control of that retreat, not necessarily retreating out of fear, but retreating for a tactical advantage, well, our opponent now has to put themselves in the position of coming forward. And there are plenty of fighters that I know that are able to draw people out and then kill them either because they no longer have the support of their team or make them make a mistake as they're trying to come in and getting frustrated, you know, chasing somebody down or trying to catch up and, you know, they're getting frustrated that they're getting, you know, kind of warded off effectively. And then they overreach or they are, uh, they, they do some sort of mistake that we're able to cap, you know, shoot back and capitalize on. So these, the, what we've talked about today loosely applies to intellectual wargaming and to physical wargaming. 
But again, I, I just thought it was a really interesting section and a really interesting idea. And I wanted to share it with y'all so that we had a, a complete, so I didn't just have to skip over this rather large section of the book. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't had enough of the art of wargaming in your life, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, where I occasionally post funny and educational memes. If you want to get in touch with the show directly, you can email us at artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns that you might have. Also be sure to check out all of our sister shows on the Earworm Network, including General Nerdery, Word Balloons, Fried Squirms, and more. We're working hard on having something for everyone. And again, you can find those at earverm.com. That's E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can also find that in the show notes. But for now, this has been Yaga Malark, signing off. Mm-hmm.